Today, we actually start a sermon series, and the sermon series is entitled, The Church We Hope For. What are the longings of the values that shape who we hope to be as a community right here in New York City? And so today, we're going to talk about this theme of authenticity, which is one of our values, the theme of authenticity. And the reason why I thought it'd be appropriate to talk about this topic in particular is because for myself, uh, the sabbatical, while it was restful, it was also a time for me to uh, go through what I would probably say is another audit of my own soul, uh, a time for me to delve deep into the areas of brokenness and the shadows that lurk within my own soul, which I'll talk about in a moment. And so this passage that was just read was actually something that, I came, that came to mind as I was thinking about what would I be preaching on today. And there's really one little aspect of this passage. If you were here maybe three or four years ago, we did a whole sermon series on the whole book of Revelation. And uh, the book of Revelation is a prophetic apocalyptic letter. Uh, you see, what happens is John, who's actually exiled on an island called Patmos, he has this vision. The Christian movement, this is the beginning of the Christian movement, Christianity is simply this small minority religion that's being persecuted. Executed. People are dying for their faith. I mean, can you imagine? This is way different than the world that we live in today. I mean, uh, is, should I use a different mic, or is this, is this okay, the, the audio? Yeah? Okay, good. That sounds great. Oh, I got a thumbs up in the back. Thank you very much for that. Um, again, I'm not used to this. I've been away for a bit. Um, so here's what happens, right? John, he has this vision. He feels absolutely hopeless because you can imagine, again, the early Christian movement, people were being persecuted, they were dying, and their families were dying for their faith. Much different world that we live in today. Today, yes, there might be persecution. Someone, someone said something about the church online, persecution, right? And, and yet this is so different than the reality that the people uh, back then lived in. It was a reality where people were dying for their faith. And so John, who's exiled, he's wondering, will God come through? He has this prophetic apocalyptic vision. He has this dream of a reality of what's happening in the heavenlies that help inform the hell and the difficulty that I'm going through on earth. So do you understand what he's going through, this moment of pain? He has this vision, and in the vision, there's this chapter that we come to that was just read for us by Solomon. Uh, in Revelation chapter 5, there's this vision, and there's this scroll that's sealed, and in this scroll that's sealed, there's this moment where there's weeping and there's this wondering and a voice cries out and says, who is worthy to open up this scroll? Now, different commentators and theologians have talked about what's in that scroll of the many thoughts that are given about what's in that scroll. The book of Revelation is about the unfolding of how will God address the evils of our day? How will God address the pain, the suffering? And so many people agree that basically what's inscribed in the scrolls is what is the future of God's plan to bring healing and salvation to his people? So you could imagine, though, there's this moment, right, where he's having this vision, and this voice comes out, who will open this scroll? And there's this anticipation, like, who is worthy to open this scroll? Who is worthy so that God can begin to address some of the deepest ills of our day and time, our personal lives, the worlds that we live in? Who is worthy? And we come to this moment in this vision, it says that he starts to weep before heaven because no one is found worthy to open the scrolls. No one is worthy to basically address some of the evils, the injustices of our day, the persecution, the suffering that the people of God are going through. I mean, have you ever been in this helpless situation where you feel like, will God ever come through? This is what John is experiencing. And then we come to the vision, though, where finally he 
hears the roar of a lion and he looks and there's a lamb as if it had been slain. And centered around the throne, uh, you would think that I had a better throne planned. <laughs> you would think. Uh, I've had two months away and all I could muster up is this green chair. There's this image of a throne. And there's a lamb as if it had been slain. And one of the most startling images of this is it's an image of people that are bowed down, angels, the heavenly beings, every, all of creation, thousands upon thousands. And check out what it says about this throne. Look at what it says. It says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, a lot. Can you imagine this picture that he's, he's getting? It's a picture of a lamb that's been slain. In other words, Jesus, who's on the throne, and angels, thousands upon thousands, are surrounding the throne. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. There's this image of thousands upon thousands encircling the throne. Can we put up the image here? Uh, I know it's a little bit hard to see, but if you could imagine, you know, there's that scene, actually, I was tempted to show it from The Lord of the Rings, where, uh, sorry if this is a spoiler for some of you, but there's this moment where everyone bows down to the hobbits. Does anyone remember those scenes? It was just me. Yeah, right? Yes. And do you remember just like, just this enormous kind of moment of everyone bowing at one time? And that's kind of the image that I see, but there's thousands and thousands encircling the throne. There's like no gaps in it. You know, it's, it's every single kind of part of the circumference is basically covered with people bowing before the throne. Endless amounts of angels and beings in this vision. And this image of the lamb on the throne is supposed to be this image to remind the people of God that whatever you're going through, there's a God who's on the throne, that he's got everything under control, that his will and his ways are perfect, even when we cannot see it, that God himself is the one who is worthy. And as I was wrestling with this whole image in my own mind of uh, all of these angels and beings encircling the throne and bowing down, there's no gaps in the bowing. It's just every single being encircles the throne, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Whether it be true for the society that we live in, when you think about governments and all the nation states that exist in the world, all the media figures, all the popular figures, all the rich and the famous, (laughs) could you imagine the picture of all, every being, every institution would actually be bowing around the throne. There is no exception. Thousands and thousands encircle the throne and are bowing around the throne. You know, when I think about institutions or organizations, there's also the reality of our own personal lives, right? And for me, it was this idea or this image of my personal life, my personal life, every image of who I am, every part of me, Are there any gaps when it comes to bowing down to Jesus? Or is it something where every single part of my own heart and my own life, whether it be my family, my relationships, my relationship to money, my relationship to work, is every single part of me bowed down to this throne 
acknowledging that Jesus is the one who is worthy, that Jesus is the one who is Lord. That is the question that I've been wrestling with and, and that I've been thinking about is this image that Jesus is the one who is preeminent. He is the wor- one worthy to be on this throne. Everything one day will bow down. Everyone one day will bow down. And the question for me during the sabbatical was, is every part of me bowed down to this Jesus? There's an image uh, that we often use at our church, and it's part of our discipleship pathway. It's this image of an iceberg. In an iceberg, of course, 90% is below the surface and 10% is above the surface. And one of the reasons why we use this image is because, in many ways, this depicts what most of us are like, including myself. And for, for whatever reason, especially in religious communities, it's easy to actually live out this image. And what I mean by this image is there's 10% above the surface, and yet there's this 90% below the surface that nobody sees that's lurking below. But somehow, you and I, we've been conditioned to be people who live and we can master and perfect this 10%. (laughs) Especially now that we've been on Zoom. I love this idea that we could somehow manicure this image of who we are and everything around us is a mess. I mean, one of the things that became very commonplace for me, right, is basically there's a mess around me, but somehow being able to angle the picture so no one could see the mess on the ground, but the walls look pristine. Uh, life hack for you. If you don't know how to do that, just call me. I'd be glad to show you. But chances are you probably perfected that too. I mean, isn't it true that most of us, when it comes to the ways that we manicure our images, whether it's online through social media or LinkedIn or whatever else, it's so easy to give the best presentation of who we are. And the same is true for me. And here's a little secret. Actually, as someone who's in this vocation of Christian ministry, it's actually probably easier and more sinister for me. Because honestly, here's what's so easy for me. I can basically say, guys, love one another. And yet my wife can feel so unloved by me. And my kids can feel so neglected from me and not being present with them. It's so easy for me to speak on behalf of God and change my voice like that. Uh, And yet be someone when it comes down to the ways that I use my money or the ways that I worry about my money and the ways that I end up using money, end up becoming very misaligned to the ways of God. I can be someone who says, pursue God with wholeheartedness and holiness. And yet when it comes to my private world and how I spend my time online, there's this sinister side to me, this 90% below, that is so easy to fake it. And in many ways, I know that the sabbatical, and I just want to say thank you for everyone who was serving and leading in my stead during the sabbatical. I know that during my sabbatical, yes, you know, people ask me all the time, they're like, oh, so how was the sabbatical? It must have been so great to get this time off that we never get ourselves in our professions. (laughs) And I recognize, like, it's an unusual thing to go on these sabbaticals. And I just want to acknowledge this. Yes, it was an amazing time of rest. But one of the hardest parts of going on sabbatical for me is it it actually feels like a death. And the reason why it feels like a death, and one of the reasons why we actually have this practice of going on sabbaticals regularly, is because what ends up happening for me as a pastor who's committed to vocational ministry is like my life and my heart get so wrapped up in the church and how it does and how it performs and what people think of me it's like so wrapped up 
that the temptation to have my 10% look very different than my 90% is there all the time. It's there in the way that I live out my personal relationships. It's there in the way that I live out my spirituality. You see, this image of a throne of thousands upon thousands encircling the throne, if I were to give an image of what it looks like personally, here's what an image would look like of what it's supposed to depict. The image of a throne where Jesus is at the center, and of course, I am centered around this throne of Jesus. Do we have that image? No, we don't. Well, just imagine it was this really cool image. And... uh, There it is, Christ-centered life, there it is. That's the image where everything is ordered around Jesus being at the center. And so, uh, this sabbatical was honestly, it was an exploration for me. Um, Yes, it was restful, it was fun, it was joyful, it was life-giving, and I just want to say thank you for that. But it was also an exploration for me to delve deeper into my own shadow all the ways in which my soul and ego get wrapped up into this church and my work and everything else. It was an opportunity for me to kind of do an audit of my own soul. There's this verse in uh, Psalm 51, and maybe you've heard about it. We actually sung about it earlier, Psalm 51. It's this beautiful verse. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's this earnest prayer. Create in me a clean heart or a pure heart, O God. Uh, You know, there's this word called integrity. And the Latin root word for the word integrity is the word integer or whole. Like there's a wholeness that comes about. A wholeness whereby which whatever is underneath the surface and whatever is above the surface, that those two things become one and the same. Now, of course, there are always blind spots that all of us have, and I just want you to know that for me personally, it was really an exploration in confronting some of the things that my wife wanted me to confront, my own defensiveness when it came to the arguments that we would have. It was a confrontation of some of the ways in which even, I, my, again, my soul and my heart get so wrapped up into ministry and what it looks like. There were actually two different memories from the past seven years that Hope Midtown has been in existence. Uh, there were two different memories that distinctly came to mind. One was, um, there's a guy named Daniel Marsland, who was our worship director for many years. And Daniel, if you knew him, he was an absolute joy. And his wife, Adriana, uh, they now live in Pennsylvania, near Adriana's family. And I remember Daniel, used to actually run our social media accounts. And so he would run our social media accounts. And I would look at our social media from time to time. And uh, I remember he posted this one picture. And it was a picture. And I couldn't quite find it. And it was just a memory that came to mind during the sabbatical. And it was a picture. He was on stage leading worship and whatever else. And uh, I remember I called him up. And I was like, hey, Danny. I was like, Danny, can you take that picture down? And he goes, why? And uh, it was unusual because I had never asked him to take a picture down before. And I said, uh, the picture, it kind of, it looks like the church is empty. And it kind of looks like people aren't having a good time. And he's like, but that's how our church is. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, uh, but I kind of don't 
want that to be like what is online. He's like, uh, okay. So he deleted it. For whatever reason, during the sabbatical, um, that memory of that exchange with Danny came to mind. And I just, it started to dawn on me like, oh my goodness, like, what are the areas in my life where I care so much about what people think and the image that we portray or that I portray or that somehow is identified with me that becomes so much more meaningful to me than having every area of my life bow down to Jesus? Another memory came to mind. It was a memory, actually, uh, some of you know that we have different Hope Churches around, and the first church that we actually started was a church in Astoria. And uh, there was actually, maybe it was like, I think it was like the third year into our church in Astoria. That was the first church that we started. And uh, we had two services at the time. And during that service, uh, someone else was preaching, one of our pastors. He preached the first service, and he didn't feel good about the sermon And so he came up to me after that first service, and he basically said to me, Drew, I don't think I could preach the second service again. And I was like, oh, what's going on? He said, I just don't feel like this this sermon fits me. And now you got to imagine, like, the the next service is coming up soon, right? And so he says to me, Drew, can you just preach the sermon? And I was like, all right. I got to do what I got to do, right? So I, so I end up, without any preparation at all, I just kind of, I was like, now, of course, I had heard his sermon. I had listened to it the first time. So the second service, I'm ready to go in front of people, and I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. So I, 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 like, I said this quick prayer, right? Like, Lord, just please, you know what I'm praying for, right? Like, that's, that's kind of how it went. And then basically, I preached this second service, crushed it crushed it like it was a great sermon people were coming up to me afterwards like true that was an amazing sermon thank you so much the person the pastor who i had replaced came up to me and he said the same thing like true thanks so much for filling in we should have had you preach the first sermon as well da, 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 you know i said oh no praise god you know god is great god is amazing And for whatever reason, that that was the second story that came to mind during the sabbatical. And one of the reasons why it came to mind was because it kind of showed me that, like, um, there's a way which I, I can get so used to, like, giving sermons and being pastor guy. It's so easy to fake it. Not that I was faking it then. I don't know what, I don't know what happened, maybe by God's grace, but... But I just remember just thinking, wow, I could, I could probably get by on just skating by when it comes to these sermons. Um, I was reflecting on this verse in Matthew where Jesus basically says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name? Drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I mean, it's a sobering passage where Jesus himself is calling out the propensity, especially of religious leaders like myself, to somehow be doing all the stuff that looks like piety, that looks like spirituality, that looks so mature and powerful and yet somehow can be so far from the heart of God. 
And the invitation to me, and I believe one of the reasons why those were the two memories of the past few years that came to mind was really to do an audit, an audit of is every part of my life encircling the throne? Is every part of me bowing down at the feet of Jesus? Or is it more so, oh, you know what parts of me are bowing down to Jesus? The public parts, that 10%, but the private parts. My insecurities, my own propensity to care so much about my image and what people think of me. My own ways of skating by when it comes to my relationship with God. What is God doing in me? You see, because here's this image again, right? The Christ-centered throne. Um, But the reality is, I think for me, and I think for many of us, when it comes down to our life, our life looks a little bit more like the self-directed throne, where our self is on the throne, and maybe Jesus kind of sits at the throne, at the foot of the throne, right around where my career is. Right around where my image management is. Right around where my propensity to want to control the future of my kids is. Right around where some of my resentments are, right? Like, it's, it's still the self who's on the throne. And Jesus is a very nice 10% Sunday thing that I'll just do to somehow ease the conscience of my soul. And yet the invitation for me and for all of us is, is every part of me encircling the throne? Is every part of me bowed down to this person, Jesus? Is there an integrity by with which I live where the things that I need to say before God, God, create in me a clean heart? Created me a pure heart. This is what I need. It's really an invitation to an honest, vulnerable assessment of myself. And so much of the past two months has been this, has been meeting with therapists, <laughs> wrestling through some of the conflicts that Tina and I would regularly go through, wrestling through some of my anxieties related to the future of my kids. Wrestling and praying through why the Knicks did not trade for Donovan Mitchell. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, although that was there. It's really an invitation to say, God, would you just take a flashlight on my soul? And will you do only what you do to bring some wholeness, some integrity to who I am? And I think this is the invitation for all of us when it comes down to living the kind of life before God that he wants us to live. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might not be Christians here, and you're just like, whoa, this is one, like, self-reflective. This is like a tough invitation. Why in the world would I ever kind of want to live this way? I'm actually purely happy doing the things that I'm doing and living my life the way that I'm living. Well, so here's the thing about the Christian faith and about the Christian life. See, it's an invitation to say that I am not the God of my own life. My career is not the God of my own life. My kids are not the God of my own life. My own happiness is not the God of my own life. But instead, there's a God who is God, 
And this God is the God who is worthy to be on the throne, which begs the question for me and for you, whether you're a Christian or you're not, the question is, why is this God worthy to be followed? Why this God? Why not me and my happiness? Because my happiness, I mean, it means a whole lot. And I, I see so many other things that are trying uh, to vie against my happiness. Why in the world would I try to submit to someone else? Well, see, this is where the Christian journey, the introduction of who Jesus is. Why do we believe in this God? Not only do we believe this God to be true as who he is, as God himself. And this is why we preach about Jesus, because we believe he's a real person who really lived, really died, and really resurrected from the grave and is really alive. But not only that, what we believe about who God is is that God is a God who, even though we might say he's not doing a great job, we believe that this God is a God of love of care, of compassion. Father, who loves us and cares for us. And the invitation for us as people is to trust that this is who God is. And if you ever doubted whether or not this is who God is, remember the story of the image of a throne. Who was seated on the throne? If we could actually go to the last slide. Christina, there's, in Revelation chapter 5, who's on the throne? Who is God? What is this Christian God like? Look at what it says. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Notice, it doesn't say, I saw Jesus who looks Swedish. Or Norwegian, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's, no, the image that he sees is a God who's a lamb, who's been slain. What is this an image of? That seems so grotesque and gory. What is that image of? It's the image of a God who loved you and me enough that he would die on a cross to show you the fullest extent of his love and his commitment to you, his commitment to how he has a great plan for you, he is for you, that even in the midst of whatever hills and valleys you might go through, whatever moments of disappointment where you wonder whether God is with you, whether God is for you, The God that we worship is a lamb who has been slain, a God who gives his life for you to show you and me that he's not some vindictive God who's out to get you, that he's not some God who wants to steal all your happiness. He's a God who is so in love with you that he'd want to give you something more deeper than happiness. He wants to give you a kind of joy a joy that the world can never give, a joy and a commitment, com, uh, contentment that whatever you go through in life, that you can trust that this is what God is like. Here's, here's the thing that God asks for, though, when it comes to my own life and my own willingness and even my own foray into this sabbatical. The invitation for me and for you when it comes to this throne, when we bow ourselves to Jesus, is to surrender, simply to surrender, <laughs> 
New Yorkers are not good at surrendering. We're good at knowing what to do. We are smart. We are educated. We make lots of money. And it's so easy for us to trust in ourselves, to have ourselves be on the throne. But the invitation of God to this Christian God who loves us is an invitation to surrender to his love, to trust him with your future, with your finances, with your relationships, with all that you have, to cling to this God. David Benner, he writes this book called uh, Surrender to Love. And look what he says. Paradoxically, no one can change until they first accept themselves as they are. Self-deceptions and an absence of real vulnerability block any meaningful transformation. It is only when I accept who I am that I dare to show you that self in all its vulnerability and nakedness. Only then do I have the opportunity to receive your love in a manner that makes a genuine difference. Most of us, we think, oh, I, I could never show vulnerably myself, the shadow parts of myself to anyone, lest they judge me and not love me. But don't you see what he's saying? He's saying the only way we can actually truly experience love is when we've taken the step of vulnerably coming before others and before God and simply surrendering to his love. It's only when we're able to say, I'm not perfect, I don't have it all figured out. In fact, there are gaps when it comes to my bowing to Jesus. There are gaps in the ways that I'm bowing to Jesus. There are gaps in what I do in my private world. There are gaps when it comes to my relationships. There are gaps. And today, what I want to invite all of us to do is just to take an inventory. Uh, Here's one of the, the invitations that I want to give. It's in Psalm 51. Look at what it says. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is what? is all your tithes. Please, just give your tithes. That's all I require of you. (laughs) All I desire is for you to what? To simply have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I'll tell you what, my own sense of image management, my own sense of kind of control when it comes to my relationship with my wife, like all of these things, they're all ways in which I'm not bowing or encircling the throne. They're all ways in which I'm just kind of sitting on the throne myself, you know, and Jesus is this kind of convenient person at the foot of the, foot of the throne. And so today, here's what I want to invite all of us to do, myself and for you, is to take the time to say, God, give me a broken spirit. Give me a broken and contrite heart. Let me surrender to your love. Not a love that's going to exploit my vulnerability, but a love that will love me in the midst of my vulnerability. Jesus himself, he hangs naked and ashamed, fully vulnerable on a cross Demonstrating to us that the way of God, which is so unlike the way of the world, is the way of divine love, the way of vulnerability and authenticity, a love that has a capacity to meet us right where we are, to accept us, and to transform us into what he wants us to be.